Now you talk about terror. What about for me? I've been terrorized all my days. I'm all my days. There's scant evidence from what we know about William Shakespeare's life that he authored the plays and sonnets attributed to him. But questioning the authorship is an unacceptable heresy among Shakespearean scholars who liken it to believing the moon landing was faked. These scholars have built their academic careers on the foundations of the Shakespearean myth, writing long biographies that are almost all based on hypothesis and conjecture. They are the guardians of the one true church, and like Grand Inquisitors arrogantly dismiss intriguing arguments to be made for other authors, including Edward de Vere, the 17th Earl of Oxford, Christopher Marlowe, Mary Sidney, Francis Bacon, and others. But perhaps like the King James Bible published in 1611, after several years of work by a committee of 47 scholars and clergymen, the plays were a collaborative effort by several talented writers and poets. Even the most adamant defenders of Shakespearean authorship concede that some of the plays attributed to him, such as Pericles, contain the work of other writers. What is not in dispute is that even raising this issue is a literary taboo. But this is not an idle question, for a writer's past and experience illuminates his or her work, despite what the postmodernists preach. The Shakespearean narrative fits perhaps too neatly, into popular mythology, the story of a poorly educated Glover's son who arrives in London from a rural village and conquers the stage and writes the most immortal verse in the English language. Joining me to discuss the debate is Elizabeth Winkler, reporter at the Wall Street Journal and the author of Shakespeare Was a Woman and Other Heresies, How Doubting the Bard Became the Biggest Taboo in Literature. So let's begin what we do know about Shakespeare, uh, you know, or the, the, we do know that Shakespeare existed. We don't know whether he actually authored any of the plays, but we know precious little and even less about Shakespeare being a literate or a literary figure. So just lay out. Sure. His life is actually fairly well documented in terms of, you know, the number of records we have for him. So you have, you know, his baptismal records, burial records, um, the baptisms of his children, financial records, business records. He was often in court um, suing for small sums of money, so legal records. He was a shareholder in the theater company um, in London. He seems to have been an actor for some period of time, but inclined more towards um, business pursuits. So his, his life is actually really well documented, better documented than other writers of the period. Um, but what skeptics point out is that it's missing the kinds of evidence you would expect from someone who supposedly spent their life writing. So for other writers, you can find things like um, letters in which they refer to their writing, my verses, da 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 da, da or um, payment records, uh, paying them for writing. Or when they die, you, you can find something like um, 
eulogies or mentions notice of their death. Our poet Edmund Spencer died last Saturday and was buried at Westminster. So that kind of stuff, that testimony, that paper trail um, for a writer's life isn't isn't there for Shakespeare in the same way. And then there are documents where you sort of would expect to find something like his will, um, where you'd think there's some mention of his legacy, his works, his his literary interests, and nothing. No mention of poems or plays or manuscripts or or literary life of any kind. And um, that's that's part of what raises the question. Well, you also raise the point. You ask, how could a writer, any writer, let alone the greatest writer in the English language, be indifferent to the literacy of his children? It's another bizarre thing. I mean, what's fascinating about this subject is just how many problems there are, how many different kinds of problems. His one daughter wrote, uh, signed her name with a mark, which was generally a sign of illiteracy in the period. You know, this was most, most, uh, you know, most women of the period were illiterate unless they came from um, fairly wealthy households. And, and another daughter signed with a signature described as painfully formed, which was probably the most she could do with a pen. So it's a, it's a strange thing. The, the women in the plays of Shakespeare are highly erudite. They're writing letters. They're composing sonnets. They're reading Ovid. Um, they're strong, really intelligent women. And then his own daughters appear to have been functionally illiterate. It's the sense that somehow the glass slipper, slipper doesn't fit the, the man and the works. You know, there's something off here. Well, you raise a lot of questions about uh, both authors that he refers to, like Ovid, mm-hmm. um, knowledge of, for instance, Italian literature, and, and you juxtapose that with what we know of his own education. Right. Uh, there's an assumption that he t- attended the local grammar school in Stratford. The records don't exist, so we don't know if he actually did. Um, but the grammar schools, you know, they were provincial one-room schoolhouses that taught Latin grammar and arithmetic. Um, and even Shakespeare scholars have said, you know, Shakespeare's knowledge of classics and philosophy is is puzzling. The scholar E.K. Chambers said, you know, uh, an education at the grammar school doesn't explain it. Because they're just absolutely brimming with the, the the new learning, Renaissance humanism, knowledge of Greek drama and political philosophy and French and, you know, Italian literature, European geography, French court politics, theology, you know, they're so knowledgeable. Um, and there's no trace of how he acquired this knowledge. It's sort of miraculous. One, one scholar, Samuel Schoenbaum, very famous Shakespeare scholar, said, Shakespeare was superhuman, <laughs> which is hilarious as an explanation because, of course, it's not an explanation at all. There's there's this mystery around how the plays were created. Um, and scholars acknowledge that. The Folger Shakespeare Library edi- edition of the plays says, um, you know, how this man or how any man came to write these works is one of the world's great mysteries. Uh, but instead of sort of pry- prying into the mystery or questioning or, you know, trying to dig deeper, there's this sense that you sort of should sort of uh, let it be, revere the mystery. Um, Well, it's worse than that, Elizabeth. (laughs) You asked that question, as you know. Yeah. Uh, And let's talk about that. I mean, that that, uh, you say that you write, the authorship question is, in the fashion of religious wars, a messy, ugly dispute. No one takes kindly to the denial of his God. Shakespeare scholars, which is to say the Shakespearean priesthood, the ordained and professionalized ranks of Stratfordians to cry the snobbery in the view that a Glover's son could win. And you interview a lot of these scholars, and to be frank, they don't come off very well. 
But let's talk about the priesthood, why they're invested in it. And, I mean, they've written whole tome, you know, biographies of, of Shakespeare, which – and you quote from it, which is, uh, you know, almost completely conjecture. But let's talk about the priesthood. The priesthood. Yeah. I mean, it's – a, it's a bizarre phenomenon. This is why, as a journalist, I was so intrigued. How how has this belief, which is essentially religious in nature, this faith that he did write these works, um, persisted in, in the modern university system among scholars who are supposed to teach critical thinking and yet aren't really applying it to their own field? I think to understand Shakespeare scholars— you have to understand the whole history of English departments and of how beliefs about Shakespeare developed. So in the 18th century, uh, pilgrims started flocking to Stratford-upon-Avon to pay homage to the poet. They would drop to their knees at the birthplace, which was the purported site of his nativity. Uh, they would cut relics from the local mulberry tree, like pieces of the, the tree cross. They sang odes to Shakespeare. But this was the tree in front of his house that supposedly was there when he lived there or something. Yeah, yeah. So uh, Stratford-upon-Avon became a kind of English Bethlehem. And Shakespeare became this Christ figure. And, you know, you can ask, why why was this happening in the first place? I think it has to do with the deep tensions in Britain between Catholicism and Protestantism and the, the back and forth in the, in the country during the Reformation. And uh, Shakespeare becomes this kind of a unifying figure that the whole country can get behind. Um, and this is also the period of expansive imperialism. Um, and Shakespeare is held up as a kind of icon. He's the national poet. He's proof of Britain's cultural superiority and of its right to rule. So Shakespeare and Britain sort of rise together. There's a, a philosopher, Thomas Carlyle, in the 1840s who says um, Shakespeare will be the rallying sign, indestructible rallying sign to unite all the English-speaking peoples of the world. Uh, and he calls him the, the universal church of Shakespeare and of all times. So this sense that um, that Britain and Shakespeare become intertwined, the nation and its poet, the the empire and its sort of hero god, and the mythologies become in, inseparable. So you really, you can't separate Shakespeare from the idea of Britain, which is why I think in, in, in Britain it's still so hard to talk about this subject because there have been just centuries of national investment in this belief. Uh, but to go back to Shakespeare scholars, English departments began to develop in the mid-19th century. They're a fairly modern phenomenon. They haven't been around that long. And they developed, so they developed during this period of bardolatry. That's what George Bernard, Bernard Shaw called it, this period of extreme veneration when Shakespeare was held up as a god, a secular god, and ideas about Shakespeare that were enshrined um, during this period have essentially been passed down from one generation of scholars to the next. Well, you have whole academic careers that are invested in the figure of a Shakespeare. And you, right. let's talk about that. I mean, let's talk about some of the modern scholarship and why – because you don't – you're not – this is not a book that claims that you know, you know, that Bacon or somebody wrote Shakespeare. You're, but it's just the fact that you've even raised the question has mm -hmm. triggered a deep animus which I want you to talk about. But first, I want you to talk about how these professors at Harvard, some of whom I had, uh, have built their careers on uh, Shakespeare as a literary figure when we know almost – we have no proof, as you said, that he was in fact uh, literary in any way. Yeah, I mean, there. I think there are a lot of psychological dynamics at play. Group think, 
to which academia is not immune. Um, and that refers to the phenomenon of, you know, a, a, a group sort of cohering around a, a, a core belief that's not questioned and excluding anyone who deviates from that group doctrine. Um, so Shakespeare scholars will have all sorts of disagreements, interpretive disagreements about the plays, you know, how you want to how you want to read them. But they they do, for the most part, adhere to this core belief um, of the authorship and and it really unites them against sort of the outsiders, the anti-Stratfordians. That's the one thing that draws them all together. Um, other dynamics like, you know, confirmation bias, the need to win approval from your department chairs, peer reviewers, journal editors, colleagues, you know, that that encourages a dynamic of conformity, I think. And you're, you're not going to sort of win the grants or get the promotions, get tenure if you're raising this question about the office. Well, you, you, write, a, you write about an academic in the book who did raise the question. There are renegades. There are, there well, are, but they yeah. get pushed right to the margins. They, it's, I mean, it's a funny thing. One, after I published an article on this topic in The Atlantic a few years ago, one professor at a very prestigious university reached out to me and he said, look, yes, of course, Shakespeare could be a pen name or a scam or a committee of various people. Um, but he didn't want to be on the record. And he clearly wasn't going to say this publicly himself, you know, because it's just not worth it. You get so attacked as a kind of a conspiracy theorist, a Shakespeare denier compared to these really, you know, compared to anti-vaxxers or Holocaust deniers, sort of purveyors of disinformation and bad actors, it, it really becomes a sort of moral taboo to question Shakespeare. So that's not worth it. No one wants to go through that. Uh, no fun. <laughs> so they just don't go there. Even if they do have doubts about the authorship, let it go. Focus on the plays. Analyze the plays. As he said to me, you know, he said, I think we have enough cut out for ourselves in figuring out what the plays are doing in themselves. Though, of course, you wonder if Understanding more about their author might not help with that. Well, at the end of the book, you interview, is it Marjorie? Marjorie Garber. Garber, who yeah. taught at Harvard. Right. It's a really interesting interview. I'm so glad you enjoyed it. I, <laughs> I think some people have misunderstood that interview. Why don't you talk about it? I thought yeah. it was fascinating. Thank and I've you. totally concurred with your reaction. Okay, interesting. Marjorie Garber is a very famous Harvard scholar. She actually just retired from Harvard a year or two ago um, and uh, lives now in England. I met her at her home in Hampstead. She has written, you know, some 20 books on Shakespeare. She hasn't touched the authorship. She hasn't written a Shakespeare biography the way someone like Stephen Greenblatt or James Shapiro have. Um, and she has said sort of Interesting things like Shakespeare is present as an absence, which is to say as a ghost, uh, or um, so much seems invested in not finding the answer. So she's kind of dancing around the subject in some of these statements. And I wanted, she's a postmodernist, you know, her, she trained at Yale in the 80s. Her, she draws on Derrida and Freud and Foucault and, she, you know, theory. Um, so she's really— All the people who have destroyed literary studies. <laughs> her, her take is really, you know, the supremacy of the text. The text is what right. matters. The right. author doesn't matter. Right. You know, very death of the author. Um, and I wanted, to, I wanted to sort of try to pin her down on, you know, her, her, her position on this topic. And when I, when I spoke with her, she just kept saying— I'm interested in the plays. I'm interested in the characters. I'm interested in the language. I'm interested in how they've been interpreted by actors. I'm interested in how they've been read. I'm interested about in uh, sort of Shakespeare and how he influenced, how the text influenced modern culture. She was interested in everything to do with Shakespeare, except who wrote the works. 
uh, which is so telling, isn't it? It's so fascinating. And we sort of went around and around. And I said, well, look, if it came out at some point that uh, the author was someone else, wouldn't that affect how you interpret the play since it's the interpretation that's so important to you? And, and she said, well, I don't think of... Um, I don't think of them as coming from a person. I think of them as a text. And I said, well, okay, but the text doesn't just appear out of thin air, right? <laughs> and she said, well, you know, sometimes it does. And she listed anonymous texts like the Rosetta Stone or medieval morality plays, um, which seem to come out of thin air because their authors are unknown to us. So I realized that she essentially treats the plays like anonymous texts, as, as though they don't have an author, even though she calls the author Shakespeare. Um, it, was, it was baffling to me because how can you, as a scholar, devote your whole career to these works? She clearly cares about Shakespeare so much. She's fascinated by the plays. She said, I rethink my interpretation of the plays any, every day. You know, how can you be not a little bit curious yeah. about where they came from or who this, per, you know, how, who this person or people, people were who, um, you know, what the influences were in their life. What, how, how do these works come about? How can you not just want to know that, even if you're not going to write a biography? So uh, it was kind of jaw-dropping, I thought, but also extremely telling because it was as though she had put on blinders and she would look at everything, but she wasn't going to go there. It was a cost. It wasn't. She kept saying she wasn't interested in it. Hmm. Okay. But I think also, I mean, I, I sort of leave it to the reader to decide what to make of that um, exchange. Is it because she knows it's too dangerous or because, I mean, some people would say, oh, she knows it's going to change at some point. So maybe she doesn't want to get pinned down as, you know, believing whatever. You, you, can, you can interpret that all sorts of ways, but she, she sort of took this position of being indifferent to the authorship. Um, and a few people reviewing the book have said that it ends on a note of sort of who cares. But that, that actually is not the point <laughs> I'm making. I'm holding her indifference up for kind of critical appraisal. Yeah. Here's a Shakespeare scholar who says she doesn't care. Well, the ends on the how book bizarre. with you asking how can you be indifferent. Yeah. Let's talk about the biographies of Shakespeare. Sure. One of my They're favorite parts of the book. Yeah. <laughs> and maybe some of the uh, – just, so, just some examples of the exchanges that you had because you were in dialogue with these people. And But well, I, let's I, talk about the biographies and then also, you know, when you actually – and then there was this uh, debate between the Supreme Court justice. and but So just talk a little bit about uh, the biographies and then – the reaction to those questions by the Stratfordians? Shakespeare biographies are, they've been called biographical fiction. The One of the big examples I use in the book is Stephen Greenblatt, Harvard Scholar's best-selling biography, Will in the World, How Shakespeare Became Shakespeare. And these books essentially try to explain the mystery, how Shakespeare became Shakespeare. And it is a mystery. Uh, there was a gathering in 2016 of scholars at the Folger Shakespeare Library in DC, and it was called Shakespeare and the Problem of Biography. And they were all sort of wringing their hands about how, how difficult it is to piece together Shakespeare's life and how he came to write these works. And one of the scholars said, you know, the, the biggest lacuna of all is how he is the mystery of how he ever became a writer in the first place. They don't know. But it's 
sort of in, this this vacuum is incredibly productive for them because it allows them to imagine. So the biographies, if you take out a highlighter and circle as you go, you'll find they're full of he must have, he could have, should have, uh, maybe, probably, surely, no doubt, their speculation. And so they all come up with different variations of this tale, you know, what he was doing in the years before the works appeared. Um, they're, they're highly imaginative. They're often compelling because they're, they, they read like, like fiction. So they're fun. They sell well. Um, but they're not historically accurate. <laughs> and scholars know this. They know it's a problem with the biography, but they, for some reason, it doesn't make them question you know, the funny thing about that conference, Shakespeare and the problem of biography, was they didn't consider that the problem of biography could be that they have the wrong biography. You know, it's a very funny thing. Greenblatt's book begins, let us imagine. Uh -huh. Kind of, it sort of sums it all up right there. Let us imagine. And it's the tale of Shakespeare is this rags to riches story, sort of archetypal hero's journey um, of a boy who comes from very humble beginnings and miraculously becomes the greatest writer in the English language. And it's a beautiful story. We love stories like that. You know, the rags to riches tale, George Lakoff said, it's it's one of our um, deep narratives, he calls it, because you can find it in, you find it in religious stories, in fairy tales, in the narratives of charismatic politicians, you know, I came from nowhere and look, you know, where I am now. It's a very compelling narrative structure. Let's talk about some of the confrontations. And I, I don't want to forget that we should bring up Mark Rylance, one of the greatest sure. contemporary actors. Yeah. Uh, uh, and I'll let you go from there. But let's start with some of these confrontations, which frankly are just hilarious. I'm glad you found them entertaining. Well, uh, let's see. I spoke with Michael Whitmore, the director of the Folger Shakespeare Library in D.C. And um, he occupies a kind of diplomatic position, right? Because they want to welcome everyone to the Folger. S scholars as well as skeptics, lovers of Shakespeare, um, of all stripes. And when I asked him about the authorship, he said, you know, I, I follow the scholarly consensus. And then he added, when it comes time to, I'll know my cue. And I sort of leaned in like, uh, when it come time, comes time to what? W what do you mean? Do you, you know... Do you think the pendulum's going to swing? What's that all about? And he sort of clammed up and said, you know, are, are you going to quote me? And he didn't want to talk about the authorship anymore. So it's that's the reaction you get from some scholars. He was happy to talk about the Folger Library, but not going to talk about the authorship. Um, I went to Stratford-upon-Avon to interview Sir Stanley Wells, who's Britain's knighted Shakespeare authority, uh, sort of one of the leading Shakespeare scholars in Britain and the world. Um he he's an interesting person because he has written on the authorship and engaged in the authorship debate. He edited this book called Shakespeare Beyond Doubt, where he's trying to say, you know, slam down any questions, say there there's nothing to nothing to doubt here. Um, so I had to talk to him. I had to interview him. He's been engaged in, in the in the discussion. And he tried to cancel our interview the evening before we were supposed to meet. He wrote to me something like, you know, I've, I've just discovered that you're an anti-Shakespearean, which is this this phrase they use for anyone right. who questions. So you, you tour the shrines in Stratford. Yeah, you know, <laughs> I should prefer not to meet with you. And so, you know, I tried to write back, convincing yeah. him, you know, I've read your books, so let's just have an interesting conversation. 
um, I used the time right to explore the shrines in Stratford. It's an amazing tourist industry there where they sort of tell you, you know, this is where Shakespeare was born and this is uh, none of its they're all sort of fraudulent sites. And that's kind of known. People have written I loved, over I think the years picture, about that. Well, the, you had a picture of the original house. and then Oh, yeah. <laughs> renovated. Totally it renovated. Three to times look, the size. <laughs> to, look mu- like, to look much more attractive. <laughs> yeah. Um, that whole history is really interesting. It, it's, the, it's the invention of tradition. Well, it's a big industry. I mean, the RSC has a theater there. I mean, yes. it's a come up. I've major, been there. I've major been there. tourist industry for Britain. Industry, yeah. um, and it's a kind of... English Bethlehem nativity yeah, site. Right. Uh, it's very funny. Yeah. And, you know, they, there's they're peddling, a, you know, a sort of fraudulent history. I don't that's a strong term to use. But, um, you know, I eventually convinced Professor Wells to meet with me. I said, you know, if you don't like my my questions, you can chuck chuck your tea at me. And he agreed. What I wanted to talk to him about were some of these allusions to the the writer Shakespeare that are made during the Renaissance. And a number of them are, he's described them as cryptic or others he sort of ignores, but some of them seem to be suggesting that there were rumors about this poet and speculation that maybe it was someone writing under, uh, you know, a, a pseudonym, essentially, discussion about who this person really was. And when I I tried to discuss some of this evidence with him, he would he was very evasive. It was sort of, I don't know, I don't remember that. Um, I don't have any theory, for instance, about a really important text in the first folio where Ben Jonson is um, discussing Shakespeare and says those of Celius ignorance, blind affection, and crafty malice are going to mis, you know, misconstrue this name, praise of this name. And uh, one of the most important texts in the authorship debate, and he didn't really have anything to say about it, didn't have a theory, he said. So it was, it was kind of a shocking conversation. I didn't, I had expected to hear all sorts of interpretations of these pieces of evidence, but I didn't expect to encounter a scholar who was just sort of saying, I don't know, I don't have anything to say about any of it. It was, it was a kind of abdication of his authority as a scholar. Let's just talk quickly about what happened to Mark Rylance. What happened to Mark Rylance? Mark Rylance was the founding director of Shakespeare's Globe Theater in, um, in London, and openly skeptical of the authorship, which was which really angered a lot of people because this is, you know, the Globe should be a bastion of orthodoxy. And what was this heretic? Heretic at the Globe, he was called in, in the London papers. And Stanley Wells tugged on his beard, sort of scolding him for being a naughty boy. Um, and there was so much, there was, I mean, he was a, a brilliant, brilliant actor and director. He was, he was considered, you know, incredibly successful tenure at the Globe. He, um, drew in huge audiences in this Elizabethan theater, which a lot of people were skeptical at first, you know, skeptical whether it would succeed. It did incredibly well, but there was so much criticism and a kind of, I think he felt abuse, that's the word he uses in my interview with him, um, towards him for his, you know, just for asking questions about this or, you know, and he was sort of pulled behind, you know, he'd go on stage, perform Hamlet, and then be pulled into a back room and scolded, you know, told what he could and couldn't say about the authorship. Um, But he left over this issue. He did eventually leave after he was there for the better part of a decade, maybe seven years or something. Um, I think he felt he'd just had enough. Um, And I think there was perhaps also a feeling that other people wanted him out, were pushing him out. Let's talk about some of the candidates. Marlowe, of course, (laughs) Bacon. uh, just, Just run through some of the ideas. 
that people have had. Sure. Francis Bacon was the first alternative candidate put forward in the 19th century, and he seemed to fit the profile of what people sort of thought the author should be like, someone highly educated, well-traveled, um, moving in the court circles of Elizabethan society, connected to sort of the politics of Europe, philosophy, um, you know, a, a genius. He, he's a, you know, he was, he was a philosopher and a statesman. And then the other thing in the 19th century was people were realizing how much legal knowledge there was in the plays. Lawyers were looking at the plays and saying, you know, Shakespeare seems to almost speak in legal phrases. He's, this is an author incredibly knowledgeable about Elizabethan law, and Bacon was a lawyer, high-ranking lawyer in, in the court. So that seemed to somehow, you know, that fit the profile. People sort of create a criminal profile, if you will, of, you know, these, the qualities the author must have had, and they look for people who fit that. Um, so Bacon was quite popular for a while. but And there was an attempts to sort of show how his philosophical works, you know, phrases match the plays, but they're very, they are very different kinds of writing. And so you can't, you know, you can't, there's no smoking gun. Well, at the so end of the speak. book, you, you have comparisons of the writing and Bacon doesn't really fit. The closest that of existent writing that was contemporaneous is Marlowe. That's right. That's right. Um, yeah, so other candidates have been put forward since then. Marlowe's one of them because his his writing so closely mirrors, resembles, some people even say sort of, you know, Shakespeare haunts Marlowe's expression. They're, they're, Shakespeare's so shaped by Marlowe. So some people thought, well, Shakespeare's so similar to Marlowe because Shakespeare must have been Marlowe, you know, in the circumstances of his death are very... Um, there's a, he was a government agent. It was we won't get into it, but it was a m kind of murky about how he died and who examined his corpse, et cetera. Right, exactly. He died under sort of mysterious circumstances in 1593, and the coroner's report, when it was discovered, you know, it kind of looks like it could be a cover-up. You know, it claims that he was murdered in a, in a tavern brawl. Um, and some people believe that, and then other people think it was, uh, you know, some kind of assassination. So did he really die then? Did he go into hiding? So Highly educated, did not come from a wealthy background. Right, that's the interesting. Was gay, probably. He was rumored to be, he was accused of being an atheist and a sodomite, you right. know, all these things um, at the time. Whether, you know, whether that was true or just sort of attempts to smear his reputation, it's kind of hard to tell. But yes, the interesting thing about Marlowe is he was born in the same year as Shakespeare, and comes from a similarly humble background. He's a son of a son of a cobbler, but he uh, goes to the prestigious King's School on scholarship, and then wins a scholarship to Cambridge. Um, so you can actually trace the course of his development, and it's not it's not a great mystery. You can see how his genius was nurtured by education. Same thing with someone like Ben Jonson. We actually have we know he went to the Westminster School. He um, uh, credited his tutor, William Camden, for being the person who sort of taught him everything he knew, he said. So for other candidates or other writers of the period, I should say, you can trace the course of their of their development and their education, and that's what's missing with Shakespeare. Great. Let's stop there. I want to thank the Real News Network and its production team, Cameron Granadino, Adam Coley, David Hebden, and Kayla Rivera. You can find me at chrisedges.substack.com.
Thank you so much for watching The Real News Network, where we lift up the voices, stories, and struggles that you care about most. And we need your help to keep doing this work. So please tap your screen now, subscribe, and donate to The Real News Network. Solidarity forever.